So I'm going to speak a little bit about something called the five hindrances to meditation. So uh, there's a lot of things that prevent us from meditating well. And, and in Buddhism, they brought it down to five really specific things, but we can add a lot to that. So the first uh, obstacle would be sense door desire. That we have six sense doors according to Buddhism. We have eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. And, and the sense door has a strong desire to, for instance, listen to good music and not listen to bad music. So desire has attachment and aversion always. We like to see pleasant things and we don't want to see unpleasant things. We like to taste pleasant food and, and not taste unpleasant food. So we have these sense doors that are driving us every day in the direction of attachment or away from with aversion. And when we sit to meditate, what are your sense doors telling you? Well, sometimes, you know, uh, your sense door touch, body, is uncomfortable. It's, you know, the cushion's not soft enough. Or the cushion is too soft. I don't have enough under my legs. I wish I had more. So the body will lead us in a direction towards pleasure, away from pain. Uh, sometimes hearing, people might be, it, it, it's never silent. They, no matter where you go, it's never silent. And it just blows my mind how true that is. So in my neighborhood... We have helicopters all night and sirens because we have a police department and a fire department two blocks away on Vermont. And my little room faces Vermont, and I hear them all night long. And then you have car alarms that go off. And you have, um, well, it's, the list goes on and on. So there's a lot of things. But when you try to meditate with more than five or six people, and even with only five or six people, there are people coughing, people sneezing, people mumbling, you know, why am I here? You know, and uh, <laughs> so you have the ear, you know, and the ear doesn't want to hear those things. And, and if you've ever been in the woods, you know, there's a lot of noise in the woods. You've got animals all night long. You've got birds chirping, you know, and it, so there's no silence there. And if you ever go to a sensory deprivation tank... Uh, there's no silence ultimately there either because you can hear your breathing and you can feel your heartbeat. And, and you just go, wow, there's never any silence. So our, our ear wants to turn off all the noise and it can't. So our sense door desire for attachment or aversion is always persuading us not to meditate because we want it to be better than it is. The next one, uh, the next uh, hindrance is ill will, anger, hatred. And if you're on Facebook now, you know there's a lot of that going around. People just aren't happy with the way things are. But when you're in a meditation retreat, you know, sometimes you have ill will towards the people leading the meditation retreat, the people talking in the meditation retreat. Sometimes the food is cold or not as good as you hoped it would be. 
So you have a little ill will to the cook or the people that brought the food. And it goes on and on and on. And then you just go, wow, I, all I have is this hatred and I'm sitting with it. And hatred is like hot coals. It only burns the person who has the hatred. It doesn't burn the person who's being hated. And there you sit with a bunch of ill will and dislike and hatred. And it's a wonderful opportunity to practice loving kindness, patience, forgiveness, and acceptance. So all this stuff can be used in our meditation practice if we're aware that we aren't that stuff. We have to be separate from it. We have to be an observer. We have to have raw awareness as that stuff arises. And it takes a while to do. Uh, The next one is sloth and torpor, just being lazy. And that's, that's, that one always attacks me because sometimes if I'm sitting for a long period of time, I just want to lay down and sleep. And, and when I do that, it's really a good sleep and it's really a deep sleep. And it makes me question why I meditate at all. Why don't I just sleep? You know? <laughs> so we get lazy, you know, and, and we, we want to do things and we say, well, I'll do it tomorrow. And so that kind of sloth can prevent us from getting engaged in our meditation practice. We're just going to do it tomorrow and tomorrow never comes. Then we have the exact opposite, agitation and worry. When are they going to ring the bell? It's been 20 minutes. I can't believe they haven't rung the bell yet. Really agitated because the timekeeper fell asleep. You know? so, and, and then you're worried about it. You know, how is it going to be? You know, will I have enough time to get home and do all the things I'm supposed to do? And there we sit quietly worrying about the future or regretting the past. And, and we don't know that this is our time right now, our whole life can only happen right now. And we're thinking about all the stuff that should have happened or couldn't happen or wouldn't happen. So that can prevent you from going into deep states of concentration and focus and, and just ruin your meditation practice. You know? So we have agitation and worry. We have ill will. We have uh, sense door desire. The fifth one, the fifth one is a tough one. Because the fifth one is skeptical doubt. Why am I meditating? What's it going to lead to? Have I met anybody who's been enlightened? I wonder what they're like. Was there a Buddha? Is this just a historical, you know, um, fairy tale that they gave me so I would sit and practice and go on retreats, you know? And, and when we're sitting in meditation, this stuff becomes so real because there's nothing else to distract us from this whole train of thought. And, and skeptical doubt is a really tough one until you start testing what you're doing. And, and by that I mean the Buddha encouraged us not to believe it because he said it was true. He encouraged us not to believe it because the elders say it was true or because it was written down or because everybody thinks it's true. But, but believe it because you have tested it yourself. You have put it to the test of either failure or success And every time I did that with the Dharma, it always turned out to be success. The Buddha was always right. So I I question faith. I I look at faith as being necessary for the first step on the path of Dharma. But after faith, something miraculously happens because you're testing all this stuff. It turns out to be true. So rather than faith, the second step is confidence. 
Now you have confidence in the Dharma, that it's proven to be true five times, ten times, a hundred times, so skeptical doubt doesn't arise anymore because you have the truth of your experiment. You have the truth of your experience. And that allows you then to sit with a lot of stuff and not know. You know, it's, it's funny, but the wisest people don't know anything for sure. And that's the way it sort of works. The people that know the most aren't necessarily the wisest, but they might be the most intelligent. So we have wisdom as a direct experience of something that may not be able to be explained because it's in your own personal experience. And there's only ever been one of you and only will be one of you. So when you try to compare notes with other people, their notes may be different, not because they're wrong, but because they aren't you. So here you are, and you've tested it, it's proven to be true, and now you don't really have to say, I know, you just can say, I don't know, and sit in the mystery of this life. You can have more mystery than light in this life, I think. And every time you come to the mystery of, I can't believe that happened, I don't know. I don't know. It's not why it happened, it's what do we do now? How do I correct it? How do I fix it? How do I become of service? What do I need to do? And sometimes you don't need to know why you're doing it. If people are benefiting, people are suffering less because of what you do, if you're suffering less because of what you do, you don't need it to be defined. So these five characteristics, for me, are fascinating because they allow me to sit with a lot of different stuff that I wouldn't have been able to sit with because I understand where it's coming from and what it's trying to do. These five things are trying to distract me from my practice of meditation. And Mara, M-A-R-A, is like the devil in Buddhism, except Mara is not evil. Mara is just a rascal who sits on your shoulder and whispers in your ear, do you really want to do that? Do you really want that second piece of cake? Go ahead. It's going to be wonderful. So Mara is always telling you what to do or what not to do, but not to your benefit, to Mara's benefit. So I I, I look at sometimes I find myself faced with Mara whispering in my ear, you know you can't sit more than 40 minutes because you'll die. And, and I'm going, well, Mara, you know, I'm going to give it a try. And, and if I die, just call 911 for me, you know. And son of a gun, you're sitting for 45 minutes or an hour, and Mara had lied to you again. And now you just look at Mara, and every time Mara comes to suggest something, to take you away from your focus, from your practice, from your path, you just smile. You're not angry. It's not evil. It's just trying to show you that, that you really have to be committed to this path of meditation for it to work. And you don't have to do it 45 minutes. You just do it 10 minutes a day, 5 minutes a day. But the secret is every day. You see that consistency. That's what changes you. And in order to change in a wholesome, skillful, good way, what we need to do, I think, is not have the ego say, this is what we're going to do but create the conditions necessary for change to happen. Create the conditions necessary for change to happen. And in the Buddhist tradition, some of those conditions necessary are understanding the Buddha as the teacher who found the answer to suffering 
and realized it himself. The Dharma, his teachings are still available today. When he was asked, what's more important, your teachings or your Dharma, the Buddha said, my teachings are more important because I can't save you. The Buddha can only tell us what he did to give us an idea of what we need to do. So there's, there's no savior in Buddhism. There's no shepherd in Buddhism. There's a teacher who realized a particular path and has shared it through the Dharma. And then we have, as I mentioned before, the Sangha. The people are trying to live that lifestyle. And, and most monks I have met, in fact, all monks I have met, aren't enlightened. I haven't met one yet. You know, but I've met some really kind monks, some generous monks, some well-disciplined monks. One of my favorite stories is, is a friend of mine. His name is Hung Shur, H-E-N-G-S-U-R-E, Reverend Hung Shur, lives at the City of 10,000 Buddhas or the Buddhist or the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. Now, years back in the 1960s, Reverend Hung Shur decided to do something that I think is just an amazing feat of, of faith and discipline. And what he did is he walked from L.A. to the city of 10,000 Buddhas, which is in Ukiah, California. It's like 250 miles, I forget, maybe probably more than that. It took him two and a half years to get there. And during that time, he had taken a vow of silence. And he didn't walk there directly. What he did is he took three steps in a bow. So he would take three steps like we were doing a walking meditation and he'd bow and have his forehead touch the ground. And then he'd get up and he'd walk three more steps and he would bow. And he'd get up and three more steps and he would bow. And he had a whole support team that would bring him food. And he had another monk who would protect him who would talk and explain because people couldn't figure out why these two monks were on Pacific Coast Highway, three <laughs> steps and a bow. And... And the first time I met him, I had known the story, and I wanted to see how it changed him. And, and he, was, he was remarkable in, in his patience and, and his receptivity. He was just sort of, he was there in a specific way with you. He wasn't thinking about other things. He didn't want to go any other place. He just wanted to be there right now in this moment. And he had plenty of time to hear what you had to say. And he had a lot of stuff to say, too, if you asked him to say it. He didn't necessarily volunteer. He, he was there, and if you had a question, sure. So that kind of commitment to this practice is it will change you in ways you have no idea. And it will make you not necessarily a better person, but that too is one of the side effects, but it makes you a much more aware person. And then you start to see things in a much different way, and you're not able to share those things with other people because they can't see it the way you see it. So you might scare them a little bit. You might them make them suffer more if you're too specific or too genuine in what your practice has allowed you to see and do. So we need restraint. We need to be aware of our situation. We need to be aware that, that not everybody meditates or has even a feeling for spirituality. But the five hindrances are there to dissuade us from meditating. We have to work with that. A lot of things come up in our life that say, you don't, no time to meditate today, you got to go to the store, you need some more milk. A lot of things come up. And the meditator says, well, I got that 15 minutes set aside. So no matter what comes up, I'll be meditating. And I find that works with the cats too. They're always hungry. I feed them twice a day. 
every day I feed the cats. Rain, sun, I'm tired, they're tired every day, morning and evening. And, and they never say thank you. They just eat and walk away. You know, so it's sort of like my meditation practice. It never says thank you. I get to walk away. But that consistency is the key. I'm going to stop there. Anybody have any comments or questions? Yes, sir. Uh, you, I think you've probably answered this about 100 times today, but what we're trying to do with this kind of meditation, at least the way you introduced it this morning, is to bring us into the exact present, wipe out the past, wipe out the future, bring us right in the present. Is that what we're trying to do here? Um, sort of. What we're trying to do is meditate. Pretty much that's all we're trying to do, is sit down and count our breath. All that other stuff happens because we sit down and meditate. You know, past and future fall away for a while. Um, hatred and anger falls away for a while. We start to see particular mind states. Once we become aware of our particular mind state, we don't have to be that. Before I started meditating, I was everything I thought. And after I started meditating, I realized it was just thinking, thinking. You know, it didn't have to be me. I had to make a choice for that to be me. So if I wanted to have that extra piece of chocolate cake, I chose to be the guy who had the second piece of chocolate cake. You know, I didn't have to choose that way. When I go to the grocery store to buy cat food, I'm there a lot and I buy a lot of cat food. And inevitably, I'm on the bakery aisle after the cat food. And, and, and there, you know, the hostess cupcakes, individually wrapped, eight to a box, under $2.50. So I got my cat food and I got my hostess cupcakes. You know, and the other day I went up to the checker and she looked at me and she looked at my cat food and she looked at my hostess cupcakes and she said, are you single, sir? <laughs> And I said, yes, how did you know? You know? <laughs> so, so the idea of meditation is the cultivation of mind. We have deeply rooted in our mind, we have greed, hatred, and delusion. And we're trying to pull those out by the roots and have, instead of greed, generosity, instead of hatred, compassion, instead of delusion, wisdom, and insight. And, and so it's a cultivation where farmers in our mind is the field, and we're working on that. But the farmer also realizes no matter how fast he plants the seed, it doesn't matter because the tree or the crops are going to grow at its own speed. So we sit down every day and cultivate and, and realize one day our cultivation will take root and bear fruit. But we don't know how long it's going to take. But each day, unknown to us, we become a little more skillful a little better, a little more insight. We don't have to even necessarily understand that. All we have to do is do the, the process. I, you know, I think that's right, because oftentimes we're told to have a goal. And if we have a goal, then we can reach it. But this is the goalless goal. There's no goal to sitting other than sitting. But the stuff that comes out of that sitting is remarkable. If you want that stuff to happen when you sit, it doesn't. You prevent it from happening because you want it to happen. So it's to sit with equanimity and balance. 
and simply wait. Have the patience to wait for stuff to happen. And it does. But we, know, we have no idea what stuff or how long it's going to take. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, two things. I have uh, uh, an announcement, I guess, or a question of everyone. Is everyone hearing okay? We do have the microphone now. Is there anyone that's not able to hear when I'm talking, Kusu is talking, people who are asking questions are talking? I can't answer it. I can't hear you. Is there anyone that is not able to hear me without the microphone? Please raise your hand. I guess not. I'd rather not use it, but if, it, if anybody... And my question is... Um, you just described the paradox that I haven't quite grasped about sitting. Um, or haven't accepted yet. Or haven't accepted yet. Yeah. And at the same time, you said that you, perhaps, or others that have sat in that way, just without expecting anything, have found something, some insight or some understanding mm-hmm. that they didn't expect. Right. That they are reluctant to share because it might shock or annoy or... Or be misunderstood. Yeah. And I'm trying to get an idea of what insights people may get in that way, but maybe you can't share them. Can you share some insight you've had or you know another practitioner has had that surprised them uh, that is shareable? Well, you know, some of the stuff is so subtle and so meaningless that it wouldn't be a... It would be sort of a boring thing but I to to be not specific but to answer the question you know certain things do come up and and it could be you know simply altered states of consciousness arise and there you are in the midst of your own personal altered states of consciousness that hasn't been drug induced so you're surprised when it happens you know because all you're doing is sitting counting your breath and all of a sudden you're in a different universe for a few moments and you wonder how you got there and, and the problem with that stuff is you can't go and ask people what it means because nobody's going to have that ex- same exact experience you just had, that transcendence, that, that annihilation of ego, if you will, for a few moments. And then you start looking through books, you know. And in the old days, you go to Bodhi Tree Bookstore on Melrose, and, and the used bookstore had this, this wonderful array of really inexpensive spiritual books. And I can remember just struggling with with one experience I had. I couldn't I couldn't figure it out. And there on the bookshelf, in sort of a dog-eared copy, half price, was the book that answered that question. And somehow I went to that book without even knowing why and started to page through it and like page thirty-four had the answer. So not only do you have these experiences, but you have this sort of um What's, what's the word I'm looking for? Synchronicity. You have this sort of synchronicity occurring where you're drawn to certain things you're not even aware of and the answers are right in front of your face. So how do you explain that to people when you can't even explain it to yourself, when you don't know why you picked up that book or why you had that experience when you were just counting your breath and minding your own business? And, and so those things occur all the time. And that's what's nice about having a sangha is you can share a general experience with people, not specific maybe, but general, and have other people say, you know, I had something really similar, but not the same happened to me, and blah, blah, blah. So now you have this sort of shared experience of 
of spirituality which validates what, ex- what happened to you. You're not going crazy. You're not going insane. It's part of your spiritual journey. And it's the part that nobody ever prepares you for. And, and that's the part you have to come to a place of acceptance with. And once you do come to acceptance, then, then your answer to that is don't know. And it's perfectly adequate. Is that? Yeah. Yes, sir. When I'm meditating, it seems like that there's the mind or the consciousness that's counting, mm-hmm. focusing on the breath, and then there's the mind or consciousness that's critiquing it or trying to draw me away. Uh, how does Zen see that? Does it see it as, as part of one thing or does it see it, those two as really separate like they seem? Yeah, I, I would say it's part of everything. When you get into one thing, you have a problem with Buddhism because there's no one in Buddhism. What you have in Buddhism instead is a variety of things all connected and interdependent. And the fascinating thing for me about the mind especially is the mind almost seems to be able to be mindful of itself. But of course it's not. We have the ego there playing tricks on us. What we're trying to achieve is a place of raw awareness. And, and this raw awareness then allows us simply to experience without critique, without knowing, without understanding. Uh, Suzuki Roshi called it choiceless awareness in his book Zen Mind, Beginner Mind. Choiceless awareness. I, I look at it this way, that we're on an island and there's one palm tree. And it's a very cloudy day. And when you look up at the sky, you, all you see is the clouds, but they're stationary. They're not moving at all. But if you use the reference point of the palm tree against the sky, you can see the clouds moving. And, and so when we're in meditation and we look at the mind, it seems to be big sky. But when we use the reference point of our meditation object, which is, which is the counting of the breath in this example... We can see the mind moments arising, existing, and passing away. Arising, existing, and passing away. And at that moment, when that first happens to you, you realize that you're not those thoughts. Those thoughts are happening because you had a human birth, you have a body and a mind. And they're separate. And between each thought is a little space of no thought that connects each thought together. And sometimes, if you meditate long enough, you can sort of rest in that in-between space of no thought. And then the thought comes, I'm resting in the space of no thought. (laughs) 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 And and then it starts again, you know. So so that's how I understand it. Yes, way in the back. Um, I'm I'm wondering the difference between kindness and compassion. Kindness and compassion. Yes. Is there a difference between kindness and compassion? I think there is. And this is what I think the difference is. Kindness is an intention. An intention to be kind. Compassion is the activity of kindness. That's how I understand it. Yeah. It seems that some of us... have trouble receiving because of past hurts, <coughs> and I wonder how 
being open to receiving relates to meditation? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, receiving is sort of surrender in, into that experience. And a lot of people have, are okay with giving because they're in charge. But when it comes to receiving, you're not necessarily in charge. You have to surrender to the reception, to the gift, to whatever it is. And, and this is one of the things that monks work on a lot because monks get a lot of stuff for free because people want to practice generosity and give. So they might be fed, they might get a new robe, you know, they might get some shampoo and a new towel, all sorts of stuff. Nothing that really has much value, but is useful in, in our personal everyday life. So how do you accept, you know, the, the all-cotton towel or the, the nylon towel? How do you accept, you know, one's a good, one's not so good? Can you have the equanimity to look at every gift as being special? And then can you have the equanimity of just having the gift be an expression of generosity? And then can you have the gift be simply an expression of we're all in this together, we're all interconnected, every time I give to you, I'm giving to me. And every time you give to me, I'm giving to you. We're always exchanging you know, uh, gifts, giving and receiving. And, and so the pride comes in a lot. Well, I, I can't accept that. I don't need that. You know? Or it's too small. I need more. You know? And so how do you get to that place in your mind? And for me, it's mostly surrender. I, I just surrender to the experience of giving and receiving. Now, I was at Watai Temple in North Hollywood years ago, and we were having a, a celebration, a Buddhist celebration. There was a gift for everybody. And so I was in line with the other monks to get my gift, and it was a travel bag. And it, and it had little wheels on it, and it was a rather nice one. I, I was just sort of excited I was going to get that as a gift for being there today. And they had lay people, lay women, offering the travel bag to the monks because they got merit they got good karma from offering a gift to the monk. Okay? So it was my turn, and the woman is giving me the travel bag, and I reach to take it, and then the monk next to me says, no, you can't have it. I said, wow. Uh, you know, and then, so then she did it again, and I did it again, and the monk said, put it down. You can't do it that way. And I said, what are you trying to say to me? He said... She's offering you a gift. You can't touch it at the same time she does. She has to put it down, take her hands away, and then you receive it. And I went, whoa. So eventually I got my travel bag. <laughs> but there's a, so there's a, sometimes there's a protocol to giving, a certain way to give, and there's a certain way to receive. And um, I, it's a wonderful experience to learn from. I've learned a lot. Thanks for the question. In the back. Ah, hi. I came here today with the goal of uh, trying to learn how to meditate. And I would, uh, if you could help me understand a little bit better what that actually means. Is the act of counting back and forth to ten, is that meditating? Or is that a road to something else that I'm going to experience, and how do I know when it's happening and if it's working? Yes. Good. Okay. Well, you won't know, but it will still happen. 
So that kind of meditation, let me give you an example of how it goes deeper than simply counting. So we start with counting. We have an intellectual concept of a number, and we attach that concept to the sensation of breath, and that's our tether. And as long as we're counting our breath, we are meditating. It's a concentration exercise. The next level is when you stop counting. And now you've counted long enough where your mind simply rests on the sensation of breath. Numbers are not lo- no longer necessary. And what happens then is your mind even becomes more peaceful because you've gotten rid of the intellectual component. You don't have to think about what number I'm on. Okay. But there's another level too. And the next level is going inside, finding the mental representation of breath, which is often depicted as being a thousand fireflies, balls of cotton, lava that's flowing. That stuff's all happening in your head, and that stuff represents the sensation of breath. That's a direct representation. At that point, you no longer hear, you no longer see, all your sense doors have closed down, and you have a completely internal, non-self experience. And that's why I say you really won't know until you come out of that experience. It's called jhana, J-H-A-N-A. There are four of those in, in physical reality and eight in, in physical and mental reality. And, and what that does is it purifies your mind, literally purifies your mind. All the thoughts and, and, and um, problems and issues you had are sort of wiped clean and ready to be put back again, but in a different way and not quite as strong and a bit more transparent. So there are different stages to meditation, and there are different attitudes. What do you want to do? In, in mindfulness meditation, there are four kinds. In tranquility meditation, there are 40 kinds. So there are 44 different kinds of meditation according to early Buddhism. And in most cases, what you want to do is come back into balance. Okay, say you have a lustful personality and, and you're just driven to be in relationship. Well, one way to bring that back into balance is to go to a cemetery and reflect on all the skeletons that are buried beneath your feet and every beautiful person you've been attracted to and desire and want to have for the rest of your life ends up six feet below. And no matter how much money they have or don't have, they all fit in the same six-foot box. And that sort of reduces your lust, sort of brings reality back into your life. And, and you're a little more subdued when you see your object of desire. So meditation, first of all, is to bring you back into balance, middle path. Buddhism is always the middle path. And to allow you to function in a more skillful human way without the um, abstract concepts of greed, hatred, and delusion. You get past that altogether. Is that helpful, sort of? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Hi. Uh, In reference to something you said earlier uh, about um, um, encountering um, a monk that was enlightened, um, would would we ever really know if we were in <laughs> Probably not. 
Now, see, that's the that's the paradox that you know we, we're sort of stuck. How, how do I recognize somebody? You know, and and would they know themselves that they're enlightened? You know, and I I don't think they would. I think you know I sometimes think they're not going to wear cruel shoes. They'll they'll be in the back of the room and they'll be very helpful. If you drop something, they'll pick it up and give it to you. And those might be some indications that they are enlightened. <laughs> you know. But, but one of the models I, uh, I, I like to use is, is, is called the four Brahma Viharas, or the four immeasurables, which may be an indication of someone who is enlightened. Number one, loving kindness. That's their only intention. Nothing else is driving them to do anything other than that. Number two, compassion, the activity of kindness. They're always involved in that activity of kindness, manifesting in so many different ways, reducing so much suffering. Number three, sympathetic joy. They're more happy when others are happy. They're more successful in their own life when others are successful. It always becomes about the other rather than the self, which is a sure sign of of, uh, spiritual progress. And number five, they always have a mind of equanimity or balance. They don't choose sides. They're never Republican or Democrat, maybe not even independent. They're always in the middle. They, they never get caught from um, being attached to something or have too much aversion for something. So those might be some of the symptoms of enlightenment that we may recognize. And if you apply that to all the people you know, it's difficult to see all those qualities in one person. And that's why when I said I've never met anybody who's enlightened, I'm sort of applying that as a template and, and always disappointed when they come up short. But I have confidence that there are enlightened people. They may just not be in Los Angeles. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Thank you.